Warning, MF Uncensored contains adult language and discussion. Listener discretion is advised. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. We're not Duffy and Dilly. Don't go wrong with Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MF Uncensored. Don't forget, if you guys are listening to us on the go, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, basically anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find more of our content on our website, themisfitfaction.com. There you find links to not only this show, but some of our other shows like The Multiverse Fancast and Cinematic Adventures. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Paul. With me via the Zoom studio is author, writer, and upcoming book releaser. I don't know if that's an actual phrase, but I'm going to make it a phrase for the sake of conversation. And well, you may know him by A.G. Flitcher, or as I'm going to be calling him, Andre Gress. Andre, how are you today? I am great. How are you? I am doing so well. Thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited to chat with you for a little bit. All right. So <laughs> before we get started, why don't you tell our our audience a little bit about you, what, you know, some of your writing, what you do, all that jazz. Yeah. Well, I'm Andre. I am from Canada, British Columbia. I've always been in a small town, so a lot of the aesthetics in my writing kind of falls in that. I mean, I'm glad that I got the chance to actually travel in my life, so it's not so, you know, static and kind of stale in my writing. Speaking of traveling, I am obviously native to Canada, but come from a family of Egyptians. And there was even some family members in Greece on my dad's side. But as for who I am as a person, I'd say I'm a very grounded and genuine person. And that's why over time, I noticed that a lot of my characters are grounded. And I actually got kind of annoyed at myself that I'm making everyone so self-aware. It's like, that's not realistic. There's no such thing as everyone knowing who they are. So I over time, developed a better understanding of different kinds of people. And, you know, most authors are like, oh, I don't like this person. I'm going to put it in my book. No, that's not how it works. But getting back to who I am, I've had a lot of different day jobs in my life, which is where I got some of my ideas from. There have been times where I realize you know i can't do this job anymore because i need to evolve as a person and as a writer obviously and part of that comes with being able to let go of things let go of complacency so i can't i guess that kind of sums it up i mean i've done a lot of actually mental health podcast interviews where i got the chance to unpack a lot of my personal stuff and that could go on for hours. I've done two hour interviews where it's just that. So I'll keep that for another one. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, let's keep moving here. Hans. Yeah, that, I, that's about it. I, I, dude, I like, I like that. I like so one of the things that you said that really resonated was that mm-hmm. a lot of times when you hear authors talk about characters, especially characters they don't like, because that's what everybody focuses on. There's a big focus on like the villains, the anti heroes, and it, People love hearing that it was based off somebody you know or somebody like the writer knows. So it's actually really refreshing to hear you say it. So for you, though, you do pull from real life into your stories and into your writings. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about your process? Because I love creating. That's why I do three podcasts, you know, YouTube shows, the whole nine. I love creating and I love hearing creators also work. My process over time actually kind of mimicked, not purposely, but how Stephen King does his process, where 
he has an image in his head that's kind of conclusive and he kind of creates a storyline from there where for me it's more like a picture that gives me questions that didn't i don't know how to answer yet and then i find the answer and that's where the story comes so for example like two nights ago i was like you know that romance story i've wanted to do for years is kind of catching up like i won't do it now but it's getting close so i i did something that i do when i don't want to lose an idea i was watching tv and i was like you know i'm getting bored of watching tv so i had this image in my head of the picture of a french italian woman just smiling her hair is blowing in hot wind or something and she's on some island in the gulf of mexico and She's looking at you or even off in the distance very romantically. So because I've never written romance before and I had that image in my head, I'm like, you know what? What if I just just kind of add a little, just add mystery here? So that's more about the chase, but also what happens when these two people meet? Because the, the premise I've always had is a long distance relationship, but I didn't know what kind of long distance relationship and what technology in terms of communication is available to these people. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the picture came to me and I just went on my computer and wrote a little pre blurb and then one paragraph for the opening chapter. And I wanted to do something that kind of came off as like a French movie where I don't know if you know, French movies, but in French film, the style is that, they don't really do any fancy cuts. It's all just long cuts and they just jump to the next one right. where they allow the character to speak for the scene. And it's it can be very draining for, for a typical American audience that's not used to not fast cuts where, where they have to actually pay attention. So I want to do something like that, but still keep... The scenes moving. I, I that's, that's what's so important to me as a writer is that no matter how poetic or action packed, chaotic or mundane, as long as a story is moving forward physically and 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 mentally, then that's a good story to me. You can you can give the reader a breather uh, as many times as you want, but it can't be like what I call the potted plant effect, whereas you're just the story is just sitting there. And then nothing's happening. Like I've I've like skimmed through books when I'm going shopping and I'm like, nope, don't like that. Nope, don't like that. And it's because the first sentence is boring me. If if the the hook is the only thing interesting on the first page, I'm not gonna read it. Right. And it's the same same thing for a movie. If the first scene is just two people sitting in a in a park bench and we stay there for ten minutes, better be a damn good good conversation. <laughs> so. See, I, I like that because a lot of times people they say if they don't if you don't get the audience hooked in the first sentence or two you're not going to have them but i like how your focus seems to be more on you still have to have the actual like meat of the story and you have to have a good story to tell so you mm -hmm. get a great hook and but if you don't have something to follow it then what's the point of having a great hook so I yes some authors, there's so many different analogies you can use. Like there's the snowball effect where you start with one flake of snow and then it rolls into something bigger. 
And that's great, but what if it starts going downhill too fast? Mm-hmm. So that's not really a good anal- analogy. A good analogy is you making a dish from scratch mm-hmm. with ingredients you're not familiar with or familiar with. So, yeah, so I, like, yeah, I like that. So like, because I, as as someone who who has eaten, of course, his family's ethnic food and other ethnic food, it's it's surprising to you, right? Like, is you either you're either gonna hate it or you're gonna love it, mm-hmm. but it's new, so you try it anyway. So that's that's how I I see writing is every book I write, even my series here of Boone and Jack, because it was like my first. Not trial and error, but I was basically trying a different genre in every installment because, like, that that plate was good, but I'm, t- I'm tired of eating pizza, so I'm going to eat something else. <laughs> Do you find so, that challenging, though, for, like, a book? It's, it's a series. Do you uh-huh. find it challenging for your audience to go from not necessarily genre to genre, but just flavor to flavor? Not necessarily, because what I do to keep the flow going is... I, I tease a little bit of the next book. Mm-hmm. So it's like maybe an epilogue or even a chapter that leads into kind of like, I'm, I'm already showing the inciting incident, basically. And it's not that I'm cheating them out of a story. It's more like, this is kind of the vibe I'm going for. Do you like that or no? Hmm. So like, even if they don't catch on to that, on the back of the cover, sometimes... I'll introduce bright colors that will kind of insinuate what happens in the next book. I don't really think I'm going to do that anymore. That was just more for the sake of not jarring the reader too much because Mm -hmm. each book is pretty different and not everyone likes that. And that's fine. But now that I've done all this, you know, writing and experience, I'm, it's not that I'm streamlining. It's more like I'm just becoming more focused. Right. So my upcoming book, Black Rose Cocoon, I actually started working on that while finishing the last book of Boone and Jack. Boone and Jack. So it's been about a year and a half. Wow. While, while working a full-time job and only being able to write on my days off because I don't have the brain power to write on my working days, I think I averaged 5,000 words a week. And what I really did for most the most part of of the process of Black Rose Cocoon is really just research and listening to crime podcasts, interviewing criminology professors, even a teacher. I don't remember where she was, somewhere in the States. I think it was Massachusetts or something. And she wrote a book about the psychology of female killers. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, I kind of stopped reading it because I realized, you know, it's not really about the killer. I'd, originally, it was going to be an origin story, but I was like, Mech, I don't I don't want to humanize a killer. That's just stupid. And it's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I ended up making, which is what I wanted to make sure it shines, is to exemplify the different ways of looking at the relationship between life and death, the metronome of it. And you were, you were talking about the writing process I didn't actually have an image in my head for this story. I, cause I wanted to create a conversation for the, the readers. Cause it was more about how murder affects society and families as opposed to the thrill of the hunt that 
that most crime authors focus on. Right. If you read the crime book, no matter who is the writer, how good they are, they focus on what the detectives are doing, and of course the killer. But you don't; they don't really touch on the psychology of it of it all. When when you when you, to me as a writer, when you try to exemplify fear, it can't just be verbatim. It can't just be the action. That's that's kind of it's it's too watered down. Right. There's there's no closeness to relatability to the reader. So one of the the types of effect that murder I did my best to try and exemplify because I'm not a mom is how does a mom feel when her child is taken away from her too soon? That is really hard to do if you're not that person. So what I did is towards the end, because and it's not really a spoiler, that, that's what I want your audience to understand. I'm not hiding who the killer is. That's not the point of the story. Right. We know who it is. It's not about the mystery. It's just when do they get caught and what happens in between. Mm-hmm. So maybe some characters don't know right away who the killer is, but it's you know, and it, that's okay. There's I'm not That doesn't cheat, cheat you out of the story. But anyway, I had a scene at the end for victim impact statements because I was watching the, all of these different adaptations of Jeffrey Dahmer's story. Mm-hmm. And so I went on YouTube and watched the actual victim impact statements. And even, I don't know if you know about this one, Daryl Brooks somewhere in the States. I think it was Georgia, somewhere in Georgia. Anyway, he was sentenced to life, sent, had a life sentence for literally running over people in a parade mm-hmm. and making sure that they're done. Right. And so I was watching this mom look directly at the killer in the court and just go off on him. Mm-hmm. And I was like getting goosebumps and just getting, getting really uncomfortable. I was like, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. I want to make the audience uncomfortable because if a mom had actually been through that and she reads it, whether it's triggering to her or not, the fact that I can show an echo of what she was feeling, at least, then that to me is powerful enough mm-hmm. that I'm reaching out to someone and saying, I don't know how you feel. I don't know what you went through, but I'm assuming it's something like this. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So the to, you have to really be willing to put yourself out there and try to exemplify other people's pain because if you only put in your pain in your writing it becomes one-sided and really selfish mm-hmm. and, and kind of strange because you're one person you can't exemplify all kinds of people through your own pain that's kind of silly mm-hmm. so this book is obviously something i'll never do again because it was it took a lot out of me it's certainly powerful and i'm proud of having put myself out there like i did a four character rotation meaning when it says chapter one it says the name of the character then we go to the next and we rotate through twice per act it would have been long-winded if i did more than that but that to me was very tricky but i managed to kind of polish it towards the end so what i did was the first act is basically a character introduction. Mm. But as we move along in the story, 
even though we go to the next character's perspective, I'm kind of continuing the same scene just on the other side. Okay. So that way I'm not jarring the reader too much. It's more like you're going to get bored of this detective perspective. So let's just flip to something a bit more relatable. So I have a detective, radio disc jockey, a doorman, and one of the victim's mom. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't really see the victim. It's kind of just mentioned because it's more about her journey as she loses people. And what does that do to her? Does it does it actually make her stronger or does she descend into madness as the 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 killer wanted? See, I like that. that. You know, it's it's very easy to do the typical like murder mystery type story or follow, you know, follow the killer or follow the mystery of un unraveling who the killer is. I like oh. that you're, you're coming from a place of pure human emotion and just like that. That's where you're taking your story from. And that's kind of what the story is building around. Do you well, did you find it? You, I mean, you mentioned that it was draining on you. I can't imagine like watching all these these true documentaries yeah. and stuff like that. Like, how did you how did you cope with that as you were writing? Well, when I did this on the last word, I, I was having an out-of-body experience because it's like I unconsciously put myself in a headspace bubble that kind of, how can I put it? It's almost like I manipulated my brainwaves into, we're doing this, hmm. and even though I don't want to. So I, I just, I committed to it. I, I treated it like, like I'm an actor where you just forget about yourself and you just go for it. You, you, you speak through the character. And so to do that with four different kinds of characters was really tasking, but I, I really wanted to do it. So what I did to kind of make it not so like I'm splitting myself apart is yes, they're all different, strong personalities, but they're all kind of, telling the same story because they're in the same place so the detective that was really tricky for me because i didn't realize i was doing this she has this very reserved stoic personality and even though she does open up a little bit about her past towards the end as a person she doesn't really change mm -hmm. and i did that i think on subconsciously on purpose because i wanted to have a character that doesn't change but becomes less numb towards the end and less black and white. And yeah, she'll be a little bit more open to certain parts of being a human being, but she's still herself. Kelly, the radio host who loses her sister, I think about a third, a third way in, not, not the sister is dead. She gets kidnapped. Okay. But by the killer. And that's not really a spoiler because it's kind of, it's at the beginning. So it doesn't matter if I say that. So that was a character that I made sure wasn't self-aware because I wanted to explore that kind of person because I've never done that before mm -hmm. where she's confident in who she is, but she's not aware of her actions and how she's being perceived by others. Because there are a lot of people like that where, yes, they're all confident and they, they know what they're doing. But as soon as you question them, they get all uptight and, and pissed yeah. off. So, like, for example, this is one scene I can tease because it's very small and it's really just a little her flair. She's holding boxes of file, a box of, sorry, a stack of files, and she can't open the, her apartment door because she also has a coffee in her hand. 
and she sees two doors down in, in the uh, in the hall, her neighbor. And she's like, can you please fish out the keys from my pocket and just open the door for me? And then she ignores her and goes back in her apartment, and then comes back out with with a big with a big box. And she goes, honey, stop trying to impress people and just gives her the box and says, just put them in here. And she's like, can you just take the keys out? Like, she's, she's that stubborn. Right. That she's just like, do what I tell you. So that's kind of the gist of the scene. So I wanted to show, like, you know, there are just, there are some people out there that they're not bad. They're not weird. Well, they're weird. But they just, they don't notice themselves sometimes. Mm-hmm. They're very stuck in their ways. And, like, yeah. A lot of times characters, whether it's TV, movie, books, any any sort of medium, people are looking for big character arc swing and suddenly they're a totally different person by the end of the story. Like uh-huh. in real life, that doesn't happen. Like I'm I'm in my mid 30s and watching somebody try and change like we're ha- uh-huh. at the time of recording. We're a week and a half into January. So everybody's in their new year, new me resolutions. Uh-huh. And some people are already like, nope, done. So it's it's refreshing well, like, with. Yeah, like with Kelly, I won't say too much, but essentially it's kind of like with Rosaria, the detective, where they kind of have a mirroring effect of being themselves until the safety net of their life is taken away from them. Hmm. So that's that's kind of how what I did for the, all the characters is that to a certain point of the story, they're all kind of just figuring out the mystery. And then I take the safety net away. And then we see what their true personality will do for their own, I guess, re- their own rescue. See, I like that. That sounds really interesting. I'm really excited for this book to come out. I think it, you said February, right? So it's like right around the corner. Are you excited? Yeah, I just got an email from my editor. She's starting on Monday for the two weeks of editing. Sometimes it becomes three because she doesn't realize how complicated my stories are. But the, like the easiest, the easy part that it for her is that it's not a fantasy story, mm-hmm. so it'll be just pre- just people. So yeah, m- mid to late February is when it should be out. That's so cool, man! Like that's it's just awesome to hear that you're doing well with like you know creating. Now you also started off as a screenwriter before you started yeah. books. So like, was that a big change from screenwriting for you know uh, I don't know if it was yeah movies TV yeah definitely because. When I did my associates in creative writing, I took like a few courses in, in screenwriting and then created an ad on Craigslist and some indie director picked me up and we got like, we got to the rough cut, but because he had me rewrite the script so many times when he wanted to do the reshoots for what he wanted, the actors said, no, we would rather do Andre's original script. So that's when I started to lose interest is that if if who I am as a writer is so small that even some indie director doesn't want to trust me with my writing and just put his stamp of visuals on it and however he wants to cut it up, then why should I bother? Right. And but but that was my mentality at that time. Right now, it's more like I just want to make a name for myself. And if. Film directors want to adapt one of my books or whatever, and I tell them about my experience as a screenwriter. And then I'll just, I'll do like a like kind of like J.K. Rowling, where you do the first 
the first draft. Mm-hmm. And even Stephen King did that for some movies. He did the first draft as a like a deal, I think. Or even I think teleplay. I think some authors do that. But yeah, yeah. So I did screenwriting for like a year or two. Then I saw that that just wasn't going anywhere. So I became a personal trainer for a year. And then I worked in film as a production assistant and background actor. And that was all on call. And it just became very sparse. So I let that go. And then I tried to write a children's book with a friend. And we both had different approaches. And it just wasn't working. So I was like, you know what? Let's go get some education and see if I can make myself credible as a writer. So I did that. And that's how I ended up getting my bachelor's. That's awesome, man. Like, that's such a cool story. And from what it sounds like, and I'm sure it relates to the books that you've written, it sounds like when you have a vision, you want to, you kind of want to see your own vision take place. And, you know, working in, in film, you got a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Everybody's got something. And directors, notoriously, oh. you know, you look at Stephen King, he hated the adaptation of The Shining. Like, it yeah. was, he hated it. And to the point where mm-hmm. I think, like, made his own afterwards. That was like completely faithful to his book. So like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember in interviews, he was saying, he said something like there were parts that he liked. Mm -hmm. And then there were other parts where he thought that Kubrick threw his body at a grenade (laughs) in terms of how he shit all over his, his story. And Stanley Kubrick, like he is notorious. Like you hear horror stories about how meticulous he is. Like I forget the female actress's name off the top of my head, but like he treated her like shit. And, yeah, like, had I, the cast I like think, not talk to her. I think she ended up doing like just years and years of therapy after that. Like her hair was falling uh, out and stuff. Like it was. Wild. Yeah, I saw a recent picture where I was like, "Oh God, what happened to you?" I'm so sorry. What did he do to you? <laughs> Now, for you, though, would you want your, your Boone and Jacques story translated first to film or TV if that was an option? Or would you rather uh, with your new book? I mean, maybe. I mean, it took me four years to write Boone and Jacques while working full time. I don't think so. Maybe because the thing about Boone and Jacques is that that's the first like series I wrote mm-hmm. be- before I felt practiced enough to be legitimate. And it's not that I'm not proud of it. It's more like it's it's something that could be adapted pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But I think now that I've become more practiced and I'm starting to be a bit more cohesive and, and polished as a writer, and it's actually the next project that I'm working on after Black Cross Cocoon, that is something that I think would be better. Mm-hmm. It's called Zifutra. I don't know how many books I'm going to do in this series, but it's a new fantasy series. It's the title is based off of two flowers, Ziphiant, which represents rebirth, and Locus Sutra, which represents hell. So Zephutra is essentially the name of an apocalyptic event. Mm-hmm. So these this brother and sister. I think Har- Harlow, I think Harlow and, and Daro. I'm still working on oh, the names. Yeah. So I was listening to this, this classical composition called The Isle of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I think it's Sergei Roka, Roka Maninoff. Anyway, I was listening to it and it gave me the 
overall energy of like a the Disney movie Fantasia. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of was like, you know, that's the kind of beat, the rhythm that I'm going for here. And even I'm there was a 1880 paint, painting based off of that composition, and because I wanted to go with something that has the vibe of a desert. So the the overall atmosphere is going to be something in the southern hemisphere, where after some certain event that happened at the end of Bunjak, there is all of these these islands and and it's full of magical people and and it's it's still all up in the air but essentially what i'm going to try and do with this is make it succinct enough that however many books i do it won't feel as jumbled as moonshack did i mean it's a great series i'm proud of it but i was trying so many different things in each book that it's not a very it's not predictable Mm-hmm. I'm saying. So what I'm I want to keep that element obviously in Zafutra, but I want each book to feel like it's just following each other. It's not me trying to outdo myself. It's just it's a surprising yet familiar feeling is what I want to try to create out of them. See, I, I really like that. As somebody who, when I started podcasting, my my first podcasts are very different. Than my current podcast, like just the just production value alone. Like when you listen to our first episode of our first podcast ever, it is rough. We tried to re-listen to it recently because I think we had an anniversary and we're like, let's let's listen to and oh my god, it is it's bad. Uh The the content is fine, but Uh oh god, like it it sounds like I threw a microphone down a long tunnel and we're yelling to it. So I like that, that you're also very self-aware that, you know, you start off with a series that you're exceptionally proud of, and you know that you still have room to grow and, you know, kind of fall into your own writing spirit. So I I think Mm -hmm. that's really cool, man. Like, and I'm looking forward to, so you're working on that next after your, your current, your next book comes out. Yeah. And then there's this other book that takes place in the same city as Black Rose Cocoon called Red Widow Waltz. It takes place 30 to 40 years after mm-hmm. Black Rose Cocoon storyline, but it, it doesn't really follow that that story. It It is the, the concept that I was going for in terms of what is left mm-hmm. after that story happens, which is, you know, the the event is over, the bubble has burst, now all that's left is pain. So what's going to happen to this kind of aura? So this CD government called Redwood Waltz, or they, they created a program called Redwood Waltz, where they, they take damaged people and try to weaponize their emotions. So they, have, they have certain abilities, kind of like, it's basically Stranger Things with adults. Okay, so right. I can get behind it, So I, I was like, you know what interests me is, is the, the Hawkins lab. So it was like, what if... Because there's a house, there's the Black Rose, the house on Black Rose Hill is what I call it in Black Rose Cocoon. So I was like, what if they actually created some kind of like sky train or or a subway that goes straight to that house? And that house has been basically transformed into this tarantula sort of nesting area for all of these people that are innocent yet not isn't innocent. And 
they create this sort of like virtual programming that will manipulate their brains into either becoming super violent or they'll resist it. And what will this government do to them if they resist? So something like that, but because it's such, whenever I, I, I think of an idea that I know is very, it could go either way. I, I don't want to do it until I'm ready. So Black Rose Cocoon, I did it because I was in the right headspace. But with Redwood Waltz, I know that I can't do that right now because it's it's really hard to do straight up psychology when you're trying to keep it lively mm-hmm. and not so down in the dumps. Because if I make every character doom and gloom, it's not, the reader's not going to be interested. Right. So I have to create some kind of like multiple layers that kind of balance out each part of of those of those those emotions mm-hmm. because otherwise I'm just like depressing the the reader. I don't want to do that. Yeah, nobody wants to read or or yeah. watch like watch a show where everybody's just miserable or depressed or yeah. like you need you need that up you need the entire emotional spectrum in order to catch because yeah. You know, I th- I think you mentioned it before. I'm trying to remember, but like you're trying to catch everybody. You can't just speak for one person. Like mm-hmm. a, good, a good story has something that you know everybody can at least not full, maybe not fully latch onto, but at least relate to in some capacity. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah. your your self awareness about your writing it it just shows like how passionate you are about it and how like how much yeah. you work on it. It's awesome. But going back to when you were asking what what created this this story kind of thing. It was actually an interview with Guillermo del Toro is what inspired a Black Rose Cocoon because the interviewer was asking him about his perspective on life and death. And he says, life cannot begin if it doesn't end. Hmm. So I was like, what? So I mean, I know, but so he was, he's essentially saying you have to see death as a beautiful thing. Because without it, we wouldn't try so hard to make something of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and there's the metronome of it, of one person lives, one person dies. So that's, that's where the whole body count and me asking, well, how would society react to murder? Would it just be a, a throwaway where I say, well, it's not me, it's not someone I know, so why should I care? So it's kind of me asking the the audience that question because that's what Guillermo del Toro does in his movies mm. when it comes to to the relationship of life and death is questioning the audience's perspective on the beauty of life and death and and do you see death as something gruesome or do you see it as something beautiful that creates the encouragement of doing something with your life because there is that sense of urgency that you should have. So with Black Rose Cocoon, that's essentially what I'm doing, which is that it's so unpredictable when someone will go. And the way I try to levity that is, yeah, there are some comedic moments because I I have to have people that do see life and death as just a careless amount of time as opposed to meaningful time. And then asking the characters, the core characters, is that you too? Or which, which one are you? Do you want to see life as something passive or active? Hmm. Man. So. I didn't I didn't know we were gonna get so deep tonight. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So 
I'm really looking forward to all this work. Like it sounds like a lot of really good stuff on the horizon. And I love to read. My wife is the queen of reading. So I'm going to have to pass your books along to her. So yeah. we, we are getting to the end of our time though. And at the end of yeah. our shows, we always like to do a little game. If you're interested, of course, where we do uh-huh. a couple of rapid fire questions. I try and create questions that are catered to who I'm speaking to. And they're just off the top of your head type answers. If you're interested. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Who is your favorite character from your Boone and Jacques series? Shammy, who is Boone's love interest throughout the whole series. Awesome. What is the most challenging aspect been of writing a female serial killer? I would say making them a monster yet tangible in terms of realism. Nice. What is a writing habit that you swear by, one of your most important ones? To make dialogue as lively yet somehow morose and chocolatey chocolate i like that phrase and who is a dream collaboration that you would like to work with in the literary sense like an author or a screenwriter anything i would say literally there's my there's my french coming in i would say stephen king for books but for movies i would love to work with guillermo del toro i actually had this weird fantasy of doing like a fucking metal song with him and just jamming out i know i was like i can just see you with the toro rocking out a bass i don't know why <laughs> I, I i could actually get behind that i could see that as well <laughs> i love him like ever since i saw um, the first hellboy movie i was like who is this guy that's directing it I he must be a metal head he must be obviously yes <laughs> and then one last one what is yeah. one piece of advice that you have for authors that are looking to make their starts keep putting stuff out there not keep writing keep putting stuff out there there are so many new authors that try to focus on perfecting one thing as opposed to just putting as much out there so that you see how people will react to different parts of your style of writing. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. If anybody wants to get your book or learn more about you or anything along those lines, what are some of the best ways that they can do it? I made it super easy for everybody. It's the same handle for everything. So H.U. Fletcher. For Facebook, Twitter, I was going to say Tokyo for some reason, TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. That's awesome, man. So and, I do, and I do teach authors, by the way, on YouTube. Oh, yeah? Well, really quick, like, how do you teach authors? So, yeah, we got we got a I basically just do lectures, and because I put my links there, I, I offer, because I have my email address on Facebook, so you can email me questions, and I can even, I've even mentored authors, uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, that kind of thing when they're trying to create a novel. I've even you know, taken little pieces of someone's writing and just gave gave notes or something. So, yeah, I mean, I've I will fair warning though to the new to new new writers. If you watch my video on on writer's block, it is my most popular, but a lot of novice writers found it like a personal attack attack because I'm very blunt about it. I, I, I was saying things like, you know, one of the, the the things about writer's block is that it's it's seen as something concrete, but it's not. It's it's your own anxiety and and fear of how it's gonna come out when it really is just you writing. There's no one in the room. It's just you writing. It's just you. But because we have that fear of, oh, this someone's gonna see this eventually. What if they don't like it? What if no one likes it? What if no one buys this? But that doesn't matter. And the biggest thing, though, that people get pissed off with my video is when I talked about perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Cannot be a perfectionist when it comes to writing because you will never finish anything. 
because you will always be so nitpicky about like this typo there, this typo there. Oh, that scene doesn't really make sense to me, or I saw it the way I want it to be. It's like, first off, that's the editor's job. <laughs> and two, even if your story is not absolutely perfect, you have to realize that there are famous authors that don't have perfect books. Mm-hmm. There's no just thing as Stephen King having perfect 60 plus books. That does that that's weird. Yeah. That's not possible. So that's kind of what I was getting to in that video. But yeah, please look at look at those videos. Uh, I most of my students have found it very helpful, and I hope you do too. I do sometimes do a series called Stories with A.G. Fletcher, where I talk about real life stories that influenced certain scenes or books in my stories. Oh, that's awesome. And I'll make sure I link all those down in the bottom. So if you guys are listening, make sure you can uh, just check out the description if you're driving the car or whatever it is. And that would be awesome. Dude, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. I really had a great time talking to you. Me too. It was, it was fun. We'll definitely connect again soon. All right. All right. Take care.